And this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray real quick, um, and then we will jump into this morning's teaching. So I want you to bow your hearts, close your eyes, and just focus upon um, God in this moment. God, uh, in this moment, we just collectively bring our thoughts, our emotions, all that we're sensing together before you. And we ask you, Father, now would you meet us? Would you make your presence known? Speak to our hearts this morning. Give us ears to hear the things that are on your mind. Give us the ability to see, to obey, to live out, to embody these truths. So we commit this morning in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Why don't you open up in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 3, John chapter 3, and as you're opening there, one final quick thing, and I will make reference to, but I will also make reference to at the very, very end. Um, Today, we are doing our monthly Welcome to Calvary Slow little meetup. It's a half an hour. It's literally very short. It's brief. Um, The big idea behind this is we've had a lot of new people uh, coming and joining us uh, for worship. If you are online and you are new, and if you would like to maybe get involved in the church, you have 45 minutes to get down here to be able to join us. Um, Those of you that are new here and you would like to get to know a little bit more about our church, uh, I I would strongly encourage you to consider the first step for you beginning to get to know a little bit about who we are. Three things we'll look at. Number one is our history. Uh, My wife and I actually will be just sharing, teaching, uh, not really teaching, but more so just talking, storytelling, a little bit about the history of our church, uh, about the theology in terms of what do we believe about God, and then finally mission, um, which means like how do we really feel and sense God calling us to be a strategic uh, community here in and on the Central Coast. So uh, again, if you're new here, if you are maybe been around for a while and uh, you would like to know some information with regard to one of those three topics that I discovered or, 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 or shared about, um, and you would like to discover more about those, uh, highly encourage you to just come immediately afterwards. Uh, we'll be actually indoors, so make sure you wear your mask. Again, it's part of our church gathering. Uh, the numbers should be pretty low, under 10 at least. But um, make sure that you just join us immediately afterwards, and we'll be able to get you guys information um, in and out if you have any questions. So uh, John chapter 3, verse 16. I want to read the passage here and just listen to it again if you are familiar with it, or maybe even overly familiar with it. This is an invitation for you to maybe look at this with fresh eyes. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Each week we've been looking at, in this season of Advent, a certain segment of this passage. First week we looked at the little phrase, for God. We tried to explore kind of the, the meaning and the significance and the de- definition biblically of who God is and what God stands for. Uh, last week we looked at the little phrase, so love that he gave. And we noticed that really at the very center of love is, is an act. Uh, in other words, you can claim to have love, yet if there's no act that follows up with that love, it's just empty, resounding, 
you know, noise. Um, but God is not empty, resounding noise. God is a symphony in his beauty. And so everything that God does and everything that God describes about himself with regard to being a loving agent or being uh, is always followed up by activity or action. And in this particular context, we see God so loved that he gave. Today, what I want to look at really just focus on the subject of son, that we see the quality of the gift that God gives. God gives himself, says that he gave his son and what I want to look at here are just a couple things. We'll wrap this up in terms of our meditation upon this passage. Um, first of all, I really just want to explore the question of what is sonship? I think it'd be helpful for us to understand this. Like, what is sonship? I mean, we can talk about what a son is. We can say a son is biologically, you know, uh, the offspring of a male and a female, right? Um, but in the Bible, is that all that it means? And again, because we're Christians, because we're followers of Jesus, um, and if you're not, you know, my hope would be at least that you would follow along on the journey in terms of just understanding how we try to understand these things, um, that the idea of sonship takes a really significant role. In fact, I would even say that this concept of sonship plays a very significant theme throughout the entire Bible. And what I want to do is I want to just look at the idea of sonship under three specific concepts or ideas. Um, the important thing to understand with regard to this particular word, you will not find a particular chapter or verse on this particular word. You'll have aspects in the New Testament describe, here's what the benefits of being a son are. Um, but in terms of the, the Bible definition, what you have is more of a theme. And the three headings that I want to kind of create for you to just consider this and think about this, you can write these down if you'd like. Number one, it involves inheritance. Two, responsibility. Three, longevity. What I mean by that, number one is inheritance. Think in terms of legacy. Think in terms of a patriarchal society. Again, we are a very PC community and culture, and we love to overthrow the patriarchy. But again, we're talking about the Bible. How does the Bible think? In what frame of reference? Uh, this is one of the elements that if, as a follower of Jesus, that may be hard for us in some ways as followers of Jesus, because we're reading the Bible in a modern context that has taught us to at least be suspicious of anything patriarchal or at best uh, or, at, you know, overthrow the patriarchy. Yet the Bible speaks about patriarchy. And that just simply means that it has a strong male has the headship over a family. And that male headship creates kind of the context, the covering, if you would. And in that ancient civilization, uh, the male worked in conjunction, relationship with his wife. He was a good, if he was a good husband, he treated her with kindness and treated the children with, with respect and dignity and value and loved them. If he was a bad husband, which oftentimes is the case in the Bible, you see all sorts of bad or poor examples of men not doing uh, their particular role or doing it in an abusive fashion. But again, just envision with me a good male, a good patriarch, one that cares for his legacy and his offspring. In that particular context, we see a father taking all that he has, all that he's worked for, all that he's built, all that he's gathered, all that he's accumulated over a lifetime, whether it be in terms of possessions or land or whatever the case may be. And then what he does is he passes that inheritance that he has, that he has developed, that he's accumulated onto his child, his firstborn son. In this particular context. So again, we're talking first of all about inheritance. Now, the whole point of this was that not, was not so that it would be spent or utilized in a selfish manner, but the child, if it was a good firstborn, again, you gotta, in some ways, uh, think about this creatively because not always was, was the firstborn son a good firstborn son. It was 
occasionally uh, the case where uh, the son, firstborn son, took advantage of others and was not a good firstborn son. But again, in the image here, think about one that's doing a good job in terms of stewarding the goods that he's been given. So number one, inheritance. Number two, responsibility. This leads into that. So what he's been given is not to be spent on himself for himself. In other words, it's to live out the father's intentions or wishes, uh, to be a good steward of everything that he has, his inheritance. This involves the idea of responsibility, which then leads into the third one, which I just simply describe as longevity, meaning a life long that gets handed down to another generation, that gets handed down to another generation, that gets handed down to another generation. What we're talking about here is blessing upon blessing upon blessing from generation to generation, to generation. This, I think, uh, encapsulates kind of the biblical concept of what sonship is intended by God to involve. Again, like I said, you're not going to find a chapter or verse on this. This more, is, more or less is a theme that just kind of gets uh, circulated throughout the entirety of the Bible. Again, I think if you were to apply this very same ideas that I descri- described here to Jesus, I think it fits well as well. Jesus received the inheritance from the Father. Jesus then responsibly carries forth that inheritance to bring forth blessing to others forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. World without end. You get the idea here. So with that being said, what I want to talk a little bit about in terms of how sonship actually plays out in the Bible. Because what you know from the very beginning, in fact, specifically Genesis chapter 1, page 1 of the Bible, you see in Genesis 1, it says that God created the heavens and the earth. And later on down about verse 26, 27, we see that God created human beings in his likeness, in his image, right? So if you think of it this way, God had offspring, physical, tangible offspring on planet earth. Again, that this was something that God created. They were the sons and daughters of God. Uh, Their job, in a sense, was to obey God to love God, to respond to God rightly. And yet what ultimately ends up happening is we see Adam and Eve turn away from God. Rather than bringing forth life, they bring forth death. Rather than bringing forth protection and care for one another, they bring forth a sense of suspicion and destruction within the human race. Uh, Then we get this very beginning of the Bible itself, Genesis chapter 3, this promise from God. It's uh, what's called the Proto-Evangelion. This is idea of the gospel before the gospel, in other words. This big concept that God says, look, you guys blew it, and by way of blowing it, I'm already going to make provision for your failure. So listen to how John chapter 3, verse 13 says this. Then the Lord said, then the Lord God said to the woman, uh, what is this that you have done? This is immediately following Adam and Eve's sin and turning away from God. God immediately goes out after them. Then it says, the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate of the food or the fruit of the tree. Verse 14, then the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall crush his heel. The image here is, again, speaking about sonship. Who's going to be the inheritor? Who's going to be the one that's going to come along? God actually says there will come one, a son, a child, an offspring that will bring forth blessing by way of crushing the head of the enemy. Uh, but through this offspring will come life. In other words, he will bring, he will be a life bearer, a life bringer. So immediately what we have now in the biblical narrative is what we see in Genesis chapter 4. So immediately following Genesis 3, this promise, in verse 1, it says this, And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore 
Cain, right? She has a child. She calls his name. I have gotten a man. So what's, what is Eve thinking, no doubt, within her mind? I think probably she's thinking, this is the man. This is the guy. This is the offspring. This is the son that will bring restoration and bring blessing and bring about the inheritance and the responsibility in a right way and ultimately longevity of blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But immediately following this, we know the story of Cain and his sibling, Abel. He ultimately ends up killing him, right? You guys are familiar with that story. Um, So I took away the punchline for you, but that's what happens. In other words, rather than bringing life, Cain brings death. Uh, Go on forward from that storyline all the way up to the time of uh, Abram. You have a guy by the name of Lamech and then Noah. And then you have the uh, accumulation of communities called Babel uh, all the way up to Abram. All of these, they consistently follow in this cul-de-sac of death over and over and over again. Rather than bringing life and restoration of hope and healing and obedience to Yahweh God. It just brings a constant cycle of death. And then you have the rest of the entire Bible, right? The Old Testament, if you want to put it that way, from the story of Abram all the way throughout the entire Old Testament narrative. You have this image of Israel. And Israel is actually called, get this, in Genesis, or in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. If you want, you can write that down. Exodus 4, 22. God himself speaks, and here's what he says. Israel is my firstborn son. When he's talking to Pharaoh, he says, let him go. In other words... If Pharaoh has any question, why should I let Israel go from out of my hands of bondage and slavery? God says, because it's my son. And what's the son supposed to do? Again, inheritance, uh, responsibility, and longevity. Did Israel faithfully do that? No, not at all. In fact, again, you follow the rest of the entire storyline in the Bible over and over and over again. On repeat, Israel just keeps constantly cycling into disobedience away from God, squandering its inheritance, not caring forth its responsibility to God and or neighbor. And as far as longevity, their life just kind of shrinks and shrivels until you get to the person of Jesus. And in the New Testament, we begin to see the story of Jesus. Jesus does everything to counteract death. He goes into places of chaos and death and brokenness. And what does he do? He brings forth order and life and hope. This is what Jesus does repeatedly over and over and over again. And this is what brings us to this whole reason why we're looking at this little passage here in John chapter 3, verse 16. We see that God actually gives himself. Now, again, we started with this concept that God uh, gives. How much does God love? What type of quality does God demonstrate his love? Uh, we see that God demonstrates his love by giving. What, what does God give? We see that God actually gives himself. I read a quote last week, and I'll read it again because they're both so good. Uh, I read a quote by a guy named Kelly Capick in his book called For God So Loved. He gave, this is what he said, God reclaims everything. Now remember the earth, we just saw this in Genesis chapter 1 belongs to God. God created it. He designed it. He oriented it. He made it in such a way so that it would thrive and flourish. It literally, at its very essence, is a gift that keeps on giving. When cultivated correctly or rightly, it gives in abundance. 
Uh, it brings forth its yield in abundance. But what happens if the earth is abused? What happens if the relationships on planet earth are abused? Well, if you want to know, it, you just get our world in which we live in right now. A world filled with chaos and brokenness, destruction. But again, if God created this and it belongs to him, what will God do? Listen to what Kelly says again. He says, God reclaims everything by giving everything away. Rather than tearing his possessions from his enemy's hands, he bestows even more on us so that we might not perish. God gives more. What's God's aim? What's God's game plan of getting back this world that has been squandered and abused and destroyed and relationships and human beings that bear his image that have gone very far away from his aim is not to rip everything out of everybody's hand, but to give himself away. Listen to how Dorothy Sayers, again, a quote I read last week. It's so good. I'm going to repeat it. She says this, this is the tale of the time when God was the underdog and then got beaten. When he submitted to the conditions that he laid down and he became a man like the men he had made. And the men he had made broke him and killed him. This is the terrifying drama of which God is both the victim and the hero. That's what we celebrate right now, this whole season. We pause to reflect and remember that God came into this world. He doesn't hate this world. He doesn't hate you. He actually loves this world. He loves you. And he loves us so much that he demonstrates his love to us and that he gave Jesus as his greatest gift. Now, three things that I want to take a look at real quickly, just from the book of John, that we see about Jesus. Number one, we see in John chapter one, verses one through five and verse 14 that we had just read at the very beginning. We see that Jesus, the son, is actually the fullness of God. Listen to it again. In the beginning... Pause real quick here. Uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Skip on down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father. Again, there's that imagery of sonship. In this case, Jesus is the one that was with God, created all things in partnership with God. All things that are seen, all things that are unseen, Jesus himself created them. Who is Jesus? He's the son. We're talking about sonship. Uh, what we see with regard to him, that he's the fullness of the father. In other words, everything that we could learn and know about God can be visibly seen through the person of Jesus. Secondly, we see that not only is Jesus the fullness of God, in verse 13 of chapter 3, we see that this Jesus descended. Listen to how this plays out in the text. John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven. Then it says, the son. Again, sonship. Who's Jesus? Well, apparently, he comes down from God. And again, this is imagery. It doesn't mean that God lives up in the sky. This is image that's basically used to describe and connect the minds of the ancient reader to where they would perceive that God is. But the idea is that Jesus comes into this world doesn't run from it, doesn't abandon it. Now, again, I don't know how you think about God. If you think about God as being one that abandons you in your state of brokenness and pain and hurt and hardship, that's not the biblical God. It may feel like that. That's just part of life. That's part of living out this Christian walk. There are moments where we feel as if God has abandoned us. But ultimately what we know is that he has not abandoned us. How do we know that? Because the story of Christmas 
Jesus comes into this world. The Son of Man descends, comes in, takes upon flesh and blood, which means our limitations, our pain, our hardships, our suffering. Just pause and reflect upon that. Who is God? He's a God that knows everything that you're going through. How? Because he's been through it himself. And then lastly, we see is that this Jesus was also lifted up. Take a look at verse 14 of chapter 3, John. As Moses, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, or another way of saying the Son of God, the Son of Man, be lifted up. What's this a reference to? Well, again, follow the life of Jesus. This is no doubt a reference to his crucifixion. So what this tells us, first and foremost, about the gift, again, the Son gift that God gives to the world, that this is a gift that comes in the fullness of God. This is God step into our world. This is God come into our whole existence and our whole experience. And this is God coming with a specific and a distinct mission to take sin upon himself, to take the forces of destruction and chaos and evil that you and I are constantly dealing with and affected by, to do something about that. This is exactly what's meant by that phrase in verse 14. Lifted up, that the Son of Man comes so that he would be lifted up, that just like God makes provision for the rebellious people in the wilderness who are being bit by snakes, God takes a serpent, sticks it up on a pole by way of the order of giving it to Moses. They stand up, they watch, and God says, anyone that looks at this serpent that's hanging on a pole will be made whole. Jesus is using this Old Testament image to say that's exactly what God is doing on repeat again through his son, through me. That all who look to the son will be rescued. So lastly, what I want to just close on is what does all this practically mean for you and I? Why is this important, in other words? Again, if you just pause, and I think if you just stop here right now, you can walk away and have some degree of a theological understanding and reshaping of your mind about who Jesus is. However, what I want for us to do is I want to walk away at least with something that would show us why this is so significant. Why does this even matter? Why is it so significant for God to come into our world? Because look, for many of us, where we are at in life is we don't necessarily think at least theoretically that what I need more than anything today is a good theology lesson. Though I would argue, that really, that's exactly what we need. We need a good theology lesson. But again, theology is always practical, meaning how we think about God. Again, some people would be like, well, I don't have a theology. You have a theology. Trust me, every human being has a theology. You think something about God. If I were to ask you, God is, fill in the blank, whatever answer you give, that's your theology. We all have a theology. Some would have a theology that aligns with the scripture in the heart of God. Others have a theology that just simply would not align with God. And what you think about God matters because it will impact how you live and the types of responses you have in this life. So with that, I want to just finish with why this matters and look at four things and I'll be done. Number one, Romans chapter eight, verse 15. You can write these down because I think these are crucial because what this tells us, why this idea of sonship even matters to you and I on a practical level. So listen to what Romans chapter 8 verse 15 says this. You have received a spirit of, you have not received, sorry, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So again, sonship, what the story of the Bible actually tells us is that God actually bestows, and this also involves you women as well, but 
It's totally cool if you want to describe it as daughtership. But the idea of sonship, God bestows upon people that were not once his people this, what he describes as the spirit of adoption. That you become grafted in, to use another metaphor in terms of agriculture, but you are brought into the family. God calls you his own. You are a son. You are a daughter. What does that mean? Again, it means we become inheritors of all that God has. It involves inheritance. It involves responsibility to that inheritance, to live out rightly. It involves blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing, what we call longevity. All of this matters. So number one is we see that Jesus brings us into acceptance. You and I are accepted in God. Again, if I, if I can just pass one thing on to you to walk away with is that if you can even grasp this and let this begin to shape you, it will change the way that you are. I would suggest that what we live in today more than ever is a culture and a society that eagerly, longingly, desperately wants to be accepted. I would even argue that's exactly what social media seems to promise. Acceptance. You post selfies of yourself in whatever type of circumstances you find yourself. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, people that I've watched on social media that seem to be there as a means of putting their best foot ahead so that others would acknowledge and recognize. And again, if you look at this, maybe let's say you're someone on social media, you've only got 500 people that are there. You're putting everything that you are out in front of 500 people, hoping, wishing, longing that somebody of that 500 group will accept you and recognize you and acknowledge you. And if it doesn't happen with the amount of likes that you're looking for in that immediate bandwidth of time, you do something even more crazy, more ridiculous. You put out more skin. You'd be more silly, more crazy, more ridiculous, all with the aim of just being accepted. But I would suggest to you, this is the very thing that the gospel offers, is acceptance. It's acceptance in the very heart of things, not just a flash in the pan moment that's here today and gone in an instant, but something for eternity, acceptance. And it's not just by, it's not just acceptance by an opinion that doesn't really matter. That again, think about this public opinion can be totally for you in a moment. In the very next moment, everybody hates you. Just watch a documentary on Michael Jackson. And that is exactly the situation with Michael Jackson. He was once the king of pop. Now, so many people hate him. It's gone, obviously. But the point of the matter is, his public opinion is so shifty. But the one opinion that really matters, that carries the greatest amount of weight, is God's. And what we're told, according to this passage here, that you have been given acceptance by God himself. You've been given sonship, daughtership. Secondly, we see assurance. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says this. The Spirit himself testifies with your spirit that we are children of God. John chapter 8, verse 35 says this. A slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. Assurance. Again, I would even argue this is something that our culture cannot, will not ever be able to provide. Why? Because we're human beings. And if at best, if what you're trying to discover or claim for yourself is someone else's assurance that they love you, that they're for you, that they're with you, do you realize at some point you will constantly exert so much energy just to get that? And at some point it will just go away? I mean, think about the friendships that you've had over the course of your life. 
boyfriends, girlfriends, marriages, friends that have been there that seemed so solid, so concrete, and then just a few months later, they're gone. But what scripture tells us is that when God bestows sonship upon us, he tells us that it will remain forever. Do you realize the amount of assurance that actually gives you? And when we have assurance, you know what that creates for us? A sense of contentment. We're not having to somehow get God's attention to do little jigs and little dances and little whatever it is that we try to do, merit-based elements to somehow get God to notice us, that God notices us just because he loves us. And then thirdly, we see love. We are given love. John chapter 3, verse, first John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, such as we are. The whole point that John is describing here is that God has brought us into love, the very tangible thing that we long for because of sonship. And then lastly, and I'm done, is joy. And this third week in Advent is really actually all about thinking about what joy is all about. Joy, and then ultimately what comes from that is peace. Listen how John describes this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'm actually going to read this out of the book, out of the uh, translation, The Message, um, just because I think the way he captured it is so good. Listen to it. He says this, from the very first day that we were there, taking it all in, this is John describing, he's kind of recounting his life. Uh, he was a eyewitness to Jesus, and here he's writing to a bunch of people that weren't eyewitnesses to Jesus. They didn't see him. They just heard stories. They were living somewhere far away from Israel, somewhere far away geographically, away from where Jesus actually came. And John's recounting his experience and encounter with Jesus. It's from the very first day that we were there, taking it all in, we heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you, in the most sober prose, that what we witnessed was incredibly this. Listen, the infinite life of God himself took shape before us. John goes on to say, we saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you that you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And he tells us, our motive in writing this to you is simply this. We want you to enjoy this, that your joy will be double your joy. The point that he's making is that to the degree that you see that Jesus has come into this world for a distinct purpose, to descend, to bear testimony to the greatness of God, and ultimately to be lifted up, to bear your sin, your brokenness, your chaos, in order to bring us and to bestow upon us sonship, then what that does, it brings us into not only his inheritance, but the responsibility that that inheritance brings. And by the way, the Holy Spirit, God gives us as a means of uh, obeying the responsibility that we've been given, but then ultimately eternal life that goes on and on and on, blessing upon blessing. This is what it means of Jesus comes into this world as a son, God's greatest gift. So as we close 
We're going to invite you in a moment of taking the communion. I'll have Mike come on up and he'll lead us in a closing song. If you're at home joining with us, uh, feel free to now go ahead and grab some bread and some juice and we're going to respond. How about we all stand? I'm going to pray and just we can close our eyes if you'd like. Um, We will have some ushers uh, hand out our little cup, communion cups. Uh, Feel free to just hold on to that for just a moment. We'll sing, and then as soon as we're done with that, we'll partake together. If you uh, feel uncomfortable taking the communion, don't feel any obligation whatsoever to have to take it. Uh, but if you are a follower of Jesus, and you find your heart uh, turning to God, and you find yourself kind of in this place of a vow renewal, I like to think that that's what uh, communion is. It's a vow renewal. It's a way of renewing your commitment to Jesus, reawakening your sense of identity in terms of who you are in God, which opens up for us this responsibility that we've been given by Jesus. It's not a heavy responsibility. Not one of those responsibilities that you have at work where it's like, I got to show up at time. I got to do this. I have to live this. It's about, I get to enter into this partnership with God to love him and to love others, to bring forth justice and kindness and gentleness and goodness to all around me. So it's a way for us just to confess our sin for God. So let me pray. And let's respond, let's sing, and we'll partake together. Jesus, we come to you now with hearts that just want to be humble, that want to confess to you, God, our failures, our sin, our brokenness, our rebellion, our disbelief. God, the things that we know that we should have done, but we didn't do, those things that we know we shouldn't have done, but we did do. And we thank you, Father, right now, that as we confess these things to you, Your word tells us that you are faithful and just to wash us and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. If you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian. You've never entrusted your life to Jesus. Or maybe you're watching online and you've never done that before. My invitation to you even right now is in whatever words that you have to just say before God, God, I'm sorry. Would you receive me? Would you show mercy to me? Would you transform me? So let's respond by way of song, and then we'll respond by way of partaking of the communion together.